0: Hey, really quick, before we get into the podcast, we aim to bring you the most practical, impartial advice in cybersecurity. So if you like what we do and you wanna help us out, please follow us on whatever platform you're listening to us on right now. Okay, let's get into the episode. If you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. This podcast is my attempt to document lessons from cybersecurity experts who can go deeper than most on critical topics. My hope is that you use these insights to fortify your business and grow your career, and maybe one day partner with SIFT to select your next cybersecurity vendor. I hope you share and enjoy. John, welcome to the No BS Cybersecurity Podcast. You're a seasoned technology contrarian with over 20 years of experience in John, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What do you do? And give us the lay of the land on on John.
1: Yeah. So John Spiegel, you're right. It's been a while. I've been in this industry for 25 years, which is hard to say. But yeah, my background is really enterprise IT. So I got involved in creating servers way, way, way back in the day that Those travels took me all across the country, and I was working with a paper products company. So I visited some really remote locations of the United States and spent that year 2000 Y2K challenges upgrading servers. But it led me into an area that I just got totally fascinated with, and that was networking. At the time, Cisco was dominating the space, and these guys would go into a closet and pull wires. And do things and then go back and program. And I'm like, well, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're setting up the network. And back in the day, it was very slow bandwidth, uh, less than a megabit per second. And I just got fascinated with that. So dive deep into networking, got my certifications on Cisco. And it really led to another job in enterprise IT, where I joined a retailer here in the Pacific Northwest, Columbia Sportswear as a network engineer and then quickly worked my way up into running the team, management, and so on and so forth. And where the contrarian part comes along is, if you kind of look at IT and infrastructure, there's been a lot of changes over the past 20 years, especially in the platform space. And when I was first building those servers, you built a server, you put an OS on it, and it was one hardware device, one server, one OS. And then around the mid-2000s, we had this thing called virtualization. And that changed the game. Not only could I have, I have one server now, but now I can put like 15, 20 different server instances on that hardware. And then I can, if I have multiple hardware servers, I can shift those loads across it. And that was really just unlocked a lot of what infrastructure could do. And then the same thing happened in the storage space. But networking, nothing changed. From 2000 really until about 2010, 2012, just remained the same you had routers and you configured them individually and they pushed packets and it's very archaic to manage them at scale was hard to do and i just got to a point where i was kind of frustrated with the industry and it's like there's got to be something else there's something different this is we're still doing the same thing but yet my friends over here and on the server and the platform side are in the virtualization automation Doing this cool stuff. Cloud came around and they're like, oh, I'm like, oh, geez, I'm still doing the same thing. And that pushed me to kind of explore the space. And I fell into software-defined networking. And then eventually software-defined WAN. And that created a lot of waves because traditionally there's a set of vendors that you work with. And when you start to challenge those vendors, it becomes problematic. And then you have to sell it within the organization. There's a new way of doing things. We can save money and get a little faster and That's kind of where the contrarian thing came in. I started pushing the edge, not only within my company, but within the industry as well.
0: And so it sounds like you were seeing innovation in these adjacent fields and you're sitting there and you're going, what the heck? We haven't seen any changes and everyone's working on all this cool stuff and we're still plugging things and working like it's the 2000s or early 2000s. Sounds like that was starting to get a little frustrating. Was there a tipping point where you're like, no one else is going to figure this out? I've got to do something. Or did it kind of happen naturally? Did you intentionally set out to kind of find a better way?
1: I think it came down to business problems. The company working for had lots of uh, retail stores, and we had a very heavy footprint in these stores. There were servers, there was routers, switches, basically a 42U rack at seven feet of infrastructure that we drop into one of these stores. And the time to configure it was, oh gosh, I think it was somewhere right around 120 hours and significant investment in terms of hardware, significant investment in software and significant manpower to bring up one of these stores. Like there's gotta be a better way because we're opening 20, 30, 40 stores a year. And this team is just killing themselves to make this happen. And I'm like, we've gotta automate this. We gotta thin it out. We've gotta go with lower costs these 1.5 meg MPLS lines, the price per megabit was crazy compared to internet. And we wanted to just really thin that out, lower the cost, get it down to the point where we could automate it, turn that 120 hours into six hours. And that's really kind of what pushed me to, to really dive into software-defined WAN and that journey caused some problems with some incumbent vendors, let's just say that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So. For those who don't know, and if you don't know and you're listening, I don't know either. So I'm going to ask this question. John, can you explain software-defined WAN and kind of how that's different than the old way of doing things?
1: Yeah. So kind of referenced it earlier in the discussion in the past, how we would configure a wide area network is you would buy a service from a provider. Could be AT&T, Verizon, name your vendor out there and would be a private network, and you would connect your remote branches back to a central location. Generally, that was a data center. The cost per megabit could be anywhere from $100 to $200, depending on the location, last mile, and you're generally limited to a T1, which is 1.5 megabits per second. The difficulty is, if you compare at the same time, you can get a broadband line, Comcast, Verizon, DSL, that might be somewhere in the realm of $50 for 10 megs, sometimes even more And when you got to broadband lines and you're paying just the ridiculous amount of lower costs. That really kind of drove some innovation in the industry around the time that software-defined networking came out. And the concept of software-defined networking was really to go to scale with networking. So not just going to each individual device and programming it, but allowing software to make changes within the network almost in real time and also being able to control multiple devices from a central point. And that worked well in the data center, but it just exploded when it came to the wide area network just because of the costs to run a network. And then you also had this thing called the Internet where SaaS applications started showing up and that really became the media for connecting locations. So as a result, software-defined networking, software-defined WAN, really became that infrastructure service. Really, from 2015 till about 2019, 2020, multiple companies went into that space. I think there were at one point measured by like 50 startups into that space. Since then, number has dropped, but it really took off. So software-defined WAN really is taking the ability for taking multiple devices at the edge that don't have a lot of intelligence in them but they're programmed from a central location. So it makes managing these networks much easier. You're able to leverage multimedia to connect to them. So it could be MPLS, could be even dial-up LTE, but more often than not, it's an internet line, whether that be broadband or a dedicated internet line. And the costs of running that service dramatically lowered, as well as the ease of managing it.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, it's really interesting. And You've been in the space so long, so you've seen iterative ideas, you've seen innovative ideas, you've seen what sticks, you've seen what dies in the hype. I'm curious, if you were elected chief emperor of AI in networking, how would you apply AI in the future, You know, 10 years from now, if you were able to shape it to your vision, what would that look like? And what are the applications and why that way? I guess, take us into your imagination and Let us know, what would your vision be for the future?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is going to be bringing insights and intelligence and abstracting the complexity for an engineer on a regular basis. When I was at my former company, I had almost two CCIE level engineers that I had to keep on staff. And there were obvious reasons why the complexity of the network was top of mind. And when things broke, they broke hard. As well as you always need that top level talent to execute on projects that either increase revenue or reduce risk, and that's really where I wanted them. I wanted them on those projects that the business was interested in because there was new avenues of revenue, or there were security reasons why we wanted them to be doing that work. I didn't want them doing the firefighting. I didn't want them doing the keep the lights on activities. And I think that's really where AI can play a role, so we can abstract what they would do on a regular basis and get it down to the point where it's almost, we've all worked with ChatGTP and know how easy it is with natural language to kind of understand what a problem is, where the solution is, what are your options? And I think that's where we're gonna see AI really take off is making it easier for somebody, network operations area or a SOC or even an operations team to get involved and understand how that network is running, how it's programmed, where are the problems, and being able to solve them almost hopefully in real time and not having to involve that high-end talent that we really want focused on revenue generating projects. I think that's where AI is going to have an increasing amount of effect on it. I think there's also a huge opportunity in security because if you have a data lake that has all that network information and it can comb through it and start to find indicators of compromise or make suggestions around firewall rules or start to point out insights that you wouldn't normally see or you would have to dedicate a team to. And the amount of time and effort to undercover that is very high. I think that's where AI can really have some advantages. So simplifying the complex is really, I think, the advantage of where AI can be and very useful to us.
0: Yeah, I think you're spot on, in my opinion, my very, very humble opinion. I think we've seen some of that in security already, just with the outsourcing, managed detection response, MSSPs, EDR, where companies are saying, hey, let's outsource some of these just redundant manual tasks so we can get our talent working on bespoke solutions internally that either drive revenue or reduce risk and secure applications a secure product right things like that and they're using the crowd strikes of the world the arctic wolves of the world to outsource a lot of that manual effort right we've seen some of that in the space with the crowd strikes and the arctic wolves where organizations are outsourcing so that they can focus on bespoke solutions that either drive revenue or reduce risk internally But I think a big challenge, especially the audience members who are listening that work at an SMB, where they say, Hey, John, we're just a two person shop. We're doing everything from help desk to cyber, and we don't know exactly what we should be outsourcing and what we shouldn't. Is there a framework or a tool or a way for the two person shop at a rural hospital in Iowa to understand what they should be outsourcing? Versus what are the things that we absolutely need to keep internally? If someone asks you that question, how do you help guide them?
1: Yeah, so it really comes down to there's a concept called core and context. So, what is core to our business? What functions does IT, digital services provide to the organization that are unique and that are core to the business? Those are the areas that you need to be focused on and investing in. Everything else is context. So, your example there, detection or EDR, things, where someone's combing through your data and trying to understand it, that's an opportunity to outsource. Networking can even be an opportunity to outsource. There's a, a new movement called NAS, Network as a Service, where companies will come in and provide your networking. That could be as simple as your wide area network, which has been out there traditionally, to getting into the point where they're managing your wireless network your local area network even some of your data center aspects that may be an area that you want to explore and take that off your hands they may be able to do a better job so look at it as what is core to my business and everything else is context sas is a great mechanism for that we don't have email servers anymore for the most part some people do but for the most part you're using gmail you're using uh O three sixty five 365, mechanisms like that. Email used to be like a core thing that would run a business on. It's not anymore. So that's an area I would look at. The key aspect there is you have to have the mindset if you're gonna do that. You have the mindset, of I'm going to manage vendors. So vendor management, SLAs, that whole procurement side of the house, how do you work with your vendors, the questions you need to ask and keep on top of them, That's an area you're going to need to invest in if you start to outsource, per se, some of those more contextual functions.
0: Hey, it's James here. Really quick, well done for making it to the midpoint of the episode. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, remember to give us a follow. And if you're really enjoying it, please drop us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the businesses that we talk to, and a lot of the audience members are SMBs, they're the one or two person shops, right? And they need the guidance on that procurement side, on the vendor management, on aligning their requirements with the vendor features, and the ability to look beyond the marketing jargon and the marketing hype. Because every vendor is going to say, hey, I can solve all of your problems, right? We have the silver bullet. But in reality, security is really about a 100 golden BBs. And so... Value-added resellers become part of the equation for those smaller shops because they have a lot more expertise. Do you see AI shaking up kind of the relationship between SMBs and uh, MSPs and VARs, or will there always be a place for that human element when looking at aligning a vendor with your core business and and your requirements? Yeah, I mean that's a human
1: aspect, so. AI is a function. It's a tool. It's like a wrench or a screwdriver right now. It can give you guidance, but if it's used in the wrong way, if you use a wrench when you should be using a screwdriver, the results are not going to be for your positive side. So you need to understand that AI is a tool, but at the end of the day, it's going to arm you with information, insights, so you can make a decision. It may suggest one, two, and three, but you have to decide which Of those, am I going to, which path am I going to go down? So will AI upset all of that and get rid of the VARs and a lot of those mechanisms? Probably not, because at the end of the day, we're all humans and we need to work together. And that's, AI is just another tool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to stay on the topic of context because I worked at two managed detection and response vendors. And one of the things that I realized is that a lot of the, context that managed detection response provider would need to be a closed-loop solution, they're actually not able to get. And so what happens is an Arctic Wolf or a CrowdStrike kind of becomes a $150,000 alert forwarding service, right? Where it's not actually a closed-loop solution. And I guess I'm curious, do you see that same gap in Hey, we're going to outsource this, but we're also not able to send the amount of context we need for the vendor to close the loop. So we'll just have them forward us alerts and then we still have to figure it out anyways. Is there a way that we can actually have a true outsource closed loop solution where they have everything that they need and we can trust that they can not only detect, but respond, remediate, close the loop and just let me know that it's done? Or will it always be more of an alert forwarding service because there's stuff we just can't send?
1: I think that's, I go back to that vendor management, do the upfront work, start to ask the questions, see if your technology portfolio aligns with that vendor. If it's only about CrowdStrike, if it's only about the EDR, you're missing a whole uh, slew of data points. You need to understand, can I get my networking information in there? Do they support my networking vendors? Because now there's multiple networking vendors. So you need to ask the questions along those lines. The other area that I mentioned is NAS as well. Some of those services can start to give you the whole portfolio. So instead of just, I've got X, Y, and Z point solutions, they can bring together the portfolio of their products and bring them together where you can get those insights. You may have to pay a little bit more. There may be a little more work on the front end. But at the end of the day, if you're looking to outsource a lot of that work, and focus on what is core to you and what is core to the business that's something to look at
0: yeah one of the trends that i'm seeing is we want humans focused on human generated alerts and machines focused on machine generated alerts how does that resonate with you
1: that resonates very well the machines have to you with ai with whatever mechanisms you're working with they have to highlight and give you that information humans don't have enough time to comb through thousands and thousands and thousands of alerts and understand what is key to them. The other piece is when you're working with those vendors, you have to almost guide them to what is important to your business because what is important to a hospital may not be the same as what is important to a retailer in terms of data leakage. So that's another aspect that as you go down this process, you need to interview that company to make sure that they understand the objectives that you're after What are the important so-called crown jewels that you need to protect? So there is an aspect of that. Yeah.
0: Is there any risk where as we sharpen the spear on detections, right, for every 1% that we focus in is another 1% that's now out of focus. Is there a reality where maybe we sharpen the spear too much, so much so that we actually lose the visibility of the other 99% or sharpening the spear on the detections to create as much friction as possible to the crown jewels really the goal like is there a sort of a focused dilemma there there
1: always is i mean there's a point of diminishing returns absolutely and then there's always the classic example of this is ids is void in the past we get a ton of alerts and Eventually you're like, wow, that's pretty cool. I'm getting all these alerts. And then you start to tone them down, turn them down, tone them down. The challenge with that is you miss the critical one and the bad guy gets through. So it's a balancing point.
0: Is cybersecurity an unwinnable war?
1: Ah, uh, that's a tough one. I'm an optimist. I'm always a glass half full. So my answer is yes. I think the challenge is, is that we are in a state, we're early on in this game. And we're dealing with a lot of technology that wasn't meant to be connected to the network in the way it is. And when I say connected to the network, I really mean the internet. The internet has an incredible amount of potential for us. The ability for me to travel and I can keep in touch with my family. I can switch my flights on the fly. I can be, the other day I was flying in to Seattle and I knew I was going to miss my flight because it was late and I opened up a chat bot with the airlines. They switched my flight in a second. There wasn't a human intervention. I didn't have to stand in line. Amazing. But on the other side, a lot of these systems, as I mentioned, are not really meant to be connected to the Internet. So for us to really win the battle and the challenge right now is we treat security much like we treat a pet. We love our pets. We want to protect them if they're sick, if they get hurt. We're going to invest a lot into them. We have insurance on them and that's all good. But at the end of the day, IT needs to be treated more like cattle. Something happens to them, the server gets sick. We just, we get rid of it. And I think that's where we start to win the battle. When we go from a mindset of our applications, not pets, and we don't have to protect them as much. But we get to a point where some of these more modern applications are built more ephemeral. There's more encryption in them that even if that server is compromised, the data that resides in it is protected. It's encrypted because it's there just in time. I think we're probably four, five, six years down the road as we see some of these applications transformed and changed. I think that's when we start to see things go in a different direction. But until then, it's gonna be a bit of a brutal battle. The other piece is government is getting more and more involved, cybersecurity. We've seen the recent, I think it's Monday, SEC rulings go into place where if you are a publicly traded company, what's so-called a material breach, we don't know what a material breach is, but you have to report on it within four days. So government regulation is coming more and more into focus, as well as this movement called Zero Trust, where we kind of flip security on its head. In the past, we build these big firewalls and data centers and and protect everything, castle and moat style. We can't do that anymore because data is resident all four corners of the world. And Zero Trust starts to make that strategy much more effective. So we're seeing that on a government level. The Biden administration signed an executive order. I think it was about 18 months ago. And so we're seeing the federal government move in that area. That's going to have a downstream effect. So pets, cattle, not pets, and zero trust, it's going to take time, but I think there's hope.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the optimism. It's refreshing. You don't see a a ton of optimism in, in cybersecurity, so it's really refreshing. And for the folks who have seen zero trust plastered all over LinkedIn, every time you go to an event, I mean, there's huge signs that say zero trust, zero trust, zero trust. Like, what the heck is zero trust? At its core, in its simplest explanation, for those who feel like they kind of get it, but what is it really?
1: It's really a strategy that looks at making you think about what do you protect, what are your crown jewels, what is the key data, and it takes that notion of data is now distributed, work is distributed, and basically, if you think of the best analogy I can think of is if somebody's been in the navy or has spent time on ships. Ships have watertight compartments. So one of the challenges why the Titanic sunk is, well, water got into the boat because it hit an iceberg and there was a hole and water just kept filling and filling and filling and filling filling into the boat. What that's very similar to where, where you get compromised in a cyber attack. Someone breaches your identity credentials, gets in through VPN, lateral movement, explores and finds the key data and exfiltrates it. And if they're really cruel, they leave some ransomware and it all you have to pay a ransom to get the data back, so on and so forth. What Zero Trust looks to do is create those airtight compartments throughout the business. They're called Protect Services. And there's a really good book about this by George Finney called The Project Zero Trust, I think it's called, or The Zero Trust Project. Look it up. It explains it very well in layman's terms. But really what it tries to do is IT creates these airtight compartments throughout the business with really a focus on where the crown jewels and protect those things most. The concept is assume breach. And if you do it right, you can detect that malicious traffic before it gets to that key protect service where the corporate data is located.
0: Yeah. And first of all, that was a very, very helpful explanation. And I think that will resonate quite a bit with the folks who feel like they Kind of get it, but it makes a lot of sense with that analogy of the airtight compartments, right? And protecting the crown jewels. I'm curious for the business owner who's just getting started right now. They have big aspirations. They want to grow. Where should they start for cyber? Is there a way for them, zero to one, like let's build with cybersecurity in mind? And one of the things that I've heard is just use Google Chromebooks, YubiKeys. Single sign-on or MFA, and you'll be like pretty secure just by doing that. Where would you tell someone to start if they had cyber top of mind right out of the gates?
1: Honestly, I would start with the key applications. So, what do you need to run your business? Is it a financial thing? Is it Salesforce? Is it what applications do you need? Then start to look at like SaaS applications. Take the risk off your plate. Don't create a data center. Don't build applications in a data center. I wouldn't even look at building applications in, if you don't have to, even in a cloud provider on an AWS or Google or whoever your application or your cloud of the future is. See if you can pull things off the shelf. See if you can find solid SaaS applications to run your business. It, that allows you to distribute the risk and distribute the security side of things, not on yourself, but on the vendor. I think that's key. And then to your point, the next one is really identity. Look for a solid identity provider. There's several out there. Okta does a great job. Ping, Azure AD, if that's where you want to go, 0 oh, 0365, those types of things. MFA, always solid if key applications, keep where the key data is. But you got to go beyond MFA. It's been shown that MFA is easy to crack. It just takes a phishing <laughs> or MFA fatigue. So you have to go further. And I do like the idea of keys. The other piece, and this will be coming obviously down market at some point, is this notion of SSE, ZTNA, those types of services, which today are really focused on the enterprise space, eventually are gonna make their way down to the SMB area. And that's an area to keep your eye on too, because that provides you risk-based authentication. So not only is it taking in the identity, but we're starting to look at the device, the time of day, what is the posture of the device? Does it have a cert on it? Those types of things. Is are you working from home? Are you working on the road? Are you in the office? I think risk-based authentication is really where we need to head. So SaaS services, identity, and then keep an idea of looking at emerging technologies like SSE.
0: Beautiful. John, this is extremely enlightening. Is there anything else that you want to tell the audience before? we sign off. You've given so many incredible nuggets and your analogies are really second to none. It makes it so much easier to understand what the heck is going on and really shows just how deep your knowledge goes. Is there anything else that you want to share with the audience? Any thoughts or closing remarks?
1: No, the key idea is technology. It's a tool. Don't get caught up in the vendor spin. We talked about AI and if you go to a conference, you any magazine you opened up today, It's all AI, and to your point as well, zero trust is a big buzzword. If someone says they can sell you zero trust, quickly walk away from that one. Think of it as a tool, do the investigations, and then be the contrarian. Keep an eye out for the future and look at what technologies can help you move forward. Just don't accept the past and what people have done in the past. There's so much new
0: technology coming out, so be a contrarian. Be a contrarian, people. I love that. John, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you and, and learn more from you?
1: Yeah, so hit me up on LinkedIn. I do a lot of posting there. I also run another organization called the SSE Forum, where we bring together practitioners, people in the space that are using some of these emerging technologies like SASE, SSE, Zero Trust. And then we also do a podcast called The Edge where we interview people that have either used this technology, are starting to get engaged with it, or they're a CISO or a security expert or somebody within the industry. We usually have a great conversation with them. So it's called the Edge. It's on uh, the most of the major podcasting platforms: Spotify, Apple, so on and so forth.
0: Beautiful, John. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, and I can't wait to check out The Edge. And if you guys want to connect with John, find him on LinkedIn.
1: Thanks, James. Enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thanks so much, John. No BS Cybersecurity is brought to you by SIFT.ai. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. On behalf of the team here at SIFT, thank you for learning with me.